Yeah, I'm the new um, Young Adults Pastor here. I'm still new. Uh, that's why there's a few uh, teething issues like that. I've uh, been around for uh, four Sundays. This is my fourth Sunday here in the evening. Um, I was sick last week, uh, unfortunately. But um, yeah, it's great to be with you. Um, for those who don't know me, I'm um, uh, married. I've got a one-and-a-half-year-old. I used to live in Canada, um, and that's where the accent's from. And I love food. I love, love food. So it's very important for you all to know that. Um, I love, uh, I love uh, dinner parties, having people over for dinner. I love cooking. I love going to people's houses for dinner. I love going out for dinner. Um, just anything. Oh, and I, I'm not just dinner, like lunches and breakfast too. They're great. Um, absolutely. Uh, but I'll tell you one thing that bugs me, right? What really bugs me is if I go out to a fancy restaurant or something and uh, order uh, something off the menu and it comes and it's a little bit bland and it's not very enticing and I think, you know, I could just do this at home. Like, I find that really annoying because I've come out to this environment um, away from my home, uh, I've paid good money and I've gotten something that's no different to what I could get somewhere else. Like, I feel like with dinner, there needs to be something distinct about it. There's something uh, distinct to get out, um, to be able to go out to get it. Now, I think the same can be true of uh, Christianity and the church. It's people looking in, see uh, Christians and, and disciples of Jesus, see how we live and what we do, and um, people might think, uh, what's distinct about that? What's different to how Christians live to the rest of the world that makes people consider, is this for me? Is this worth uh, coming and being part of? Is it, what is it? What are the distinctives of disciples of Jesus that uh, prompt people, that challenge people, that point people beyond themselves to, to the one they're following? That's what, uh, the, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be exploring that question, the distinctives of discipleship. What is it? that makes disciples of Jesus different to the rest of the world. And we're going to spend uh, two weeks in Luke 14. And at the end of that um, chapter, uh, Luke says, uh, sorry, Jesus says this, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So the challenge uh, over the next a uh, couple of weeks, particularly today, is how are Christians different? The, what are the distinctives of discipleship? What are the distinctives of discipleship? What makes disciples of Jesus different? Now, what we're going to look at tonight is a series of dinner party uh, events. Uh, Jesus goes to a dinner party. There's heaps of food-related uh, analogies tonight. It's great. Um, uh, but before we do that, uh, I just want to make three quick clarifications. So the first is that this is not an exhaustive list. What we look at over the next couple of weeks is not everything there is to discipleship or to being a Christian. It's just some of it, and important stuff to look at it. But it's not everything. It's not exhaustive. The second point is that these distinctives don't make disciples. Being a disciple makes you distinctive. All right, do you get that? So it's not about like you do these things, you act in this way, you, do, you, you think this way, you have this attitude, then you become a follower of Jesus. That's not, that's not what it's about. But you become a follower of Jesus, and as, as, as Jesus works in your life, you'll find yourself, you start acting a different way. So the distinctives don't make disciples, 
the disciples make distinctives. And finally, uh, this is not exclusive to Christianity. Uh, um, these traits are found outside of the Christian church. And, and as I've already alluded to, sometimes uh, the Christian church is not very good at um, exhibiting these traits. Uh, but these things is what Jesus calls us to live up to. As we follow him, uh, this, is, this is the attitudes, the thoughts, the ideas that we're called to uh, as we follow him. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to pray and then we're going to open up the Bible together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is living, is powerful. We've, we've witnessed it uh, e- even already through Jada's testimony. Uh, we pray you'd speak to us now. You challenge us uh, to think about how we can be distinctive uh, as disciples of Jesus. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke 14. They'll also be uh, on the screen there. I'm going to read uh, the first six verses. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he, be, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from a normal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And again, they had nothing to say. Now, like I mentioned before, um, Jesus goes to a dinner party. He's already been interacting with the Pharisees and they invite him over to dinner, which is a really generous uh, act of them. Uh, But there's a key in there in the first verse uh, that kind of highlights the agenda that the Pharisees have for Jesus. They're watching him closely. Uh, The Pharisees are watching Jesus, trying to stitch him up to see if he'll do something wrong and then they can can, um, judge him. Then they can ultimately kill him. And so it's not, so, not an innocent dinner party. And Jesus arrives at this party. There's Pharisees, there's other prominent people around the place. And in the corner of a room is a man with dropsy, uh, a, you know, abnormal swelling of the body. So someone who's, who's significantly sick, who's effectively dying in front of them. And uh, the Pharisees have gone and found this man, brought, them, brought him so that they could uh, make Jesus do something on the Sabbath, and then they could accuse him. So they're stitching him up with this man with dropsy. But Jesus, is, he's, he's on to it straight away. He knows what's going on. And so he calls them out by asking a question. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And of course, the Pharisees are silent They're silent. They don't actually know how to respond to that. And the reason is, is because it's not not that simple a question. Um, If you were to take it, is it lawful in in the sense of the rabbinic law, of all the different laws that the Pharisees and and the teachers of the law pulled together on top of the Torah, the original uh, God-spoken law, then yeah, it is is not, sorry, no, it is not lawful to heal on the Sabbath if you're talking rabbinic law. But if you take the original uh, biblical law, there's nothing in that that says you can't heal someone 
on the Sabbath. In fact, the Sabbath was made, uh, made to honor God. And so, yes, it is lawful. And so the Pharisees are in a particular uh, position with, when Jesus asks that question is they don't know how to answer. Because if they answer, yes, it is lawful, uh, then they'll, they'll be seen to, people will think that um, they've disregarded the law, that they don't care about the rabbinic law. But if they say, no, it's not lawful, don't heal the man, they'll see, be seen to be cruel. People think they're, they're cruel and harsh on this poor man who's dying. And so they're silent. They're silent. Jesus calls uh, this out. It, it's not about, they don't care about the law. They don't care about the man. They care about what people think of them. They care about what people think of them. Uh, they wanted to be seen to be doing the right thing. They wanted to be seen to be keeping the law, not actually doing the right thing. And so Jesus uh, calls them out by asking, would they do it for their own children? Would they do it for their own uh, property, their own um, cattle, for their own ox? And of course, if um, a child or an ox is, falls down a well on the Sabbath, of course they'd go and save that child or ox, their property, their family. So why not heal a man who is dying in front of them on the Sabbath? They don't care about uh, people. They care about what people think. Now, I think um, this, this, this drive for uh, caring about what people think is actually a cultural driver that was definitely there back then, but it's here today as well. Our culture is more about the image we portray than the actual person that we are. So we just, a good, and it is a bit cliche, but a good example of that is social media. So it's a whole digital platform that is built around the entire concept of look at me. Look what I did today. Look what I had for breakfast. Look who I'm hanging out with. Uh, like that's, that's, that's what social media is all about. It's about look at me. Now, you, um, now I, I've got to say, I've got Instagram. I'm on Facebook. Like, do add me as a friend if you're not already, uh, you know. <laughs> Um, and, and I struggle to decide what to put, put up. Um, I think 80% of my photos are of me sleeping. Um, you know, it's, yeah. there you go. Um, I, you know, I, I struggle to decide what to put up because I, I do wonder what would people think of this image or what would people do? Obviously, I don't care about people knowing that I sleep a lot. But, um, but there's nothing inherently wrong with social media. But the point is that it doesn't matter what we look at, look like in the digital world. It matters how we treat the people around us in the real world. We do, uh, we do similar stuff in our schools and work. We um, bolster numbers a bit to make it look like we've done more work than we actually do. Or we might read um, the spark notes of a book to, to make it look like we've read the book for assignment. I think we can, we can do similar stuff in church uh, where, you know, we might recite a couple of Bible verses to make it look like we know the whole Bible, like the back of a hand, or when we're serving uh, on supper or packing away the chairs, uh, we, we care more about who's noticing us do that than the actual need itself. So what do we care about? We care about whether people think that we're faithful, uh, honest, uh, obedient Christians, or that whether we actually are or not. Who are we trying to impress? Who are we wanting to notice us? So that's the cultural drive we're in. And, and even as, as a church, we're caught up 
But Jesus flips the script of the cultural drive. He flips the script. Um, here he is, Jesus, with all this cultural pressure uh, and of what to do and what not to do. And is it lawful? Isn't it lawful? Uh, and, you know, the Pharisees have brought this man up to stitch him up, to ca- catch him in the act, to get him to do something that they could accuse him of. But he doesn't care about that. He cares about the man in front of him. And so he takes the man, he heals him, and he sends him on his way. He doesn't care about what people think. He cares about people. And so as disciples of Jesus, uh, that's how we are called to be distinct. That's how we are called to be different. Like Jesus, we're to flip the script on the cultural driver and not care what people think, but care about people. I think uh, we've shared examples before, but as a, as a national global church, I'm not talking about any particular donation, but as a whole church, I think we, we've been fighting too much to protect our reputation. I think we need to be doing more fighting to protect uh, the innocent, vulnerable people. And so Jesus flips the script uh, and calls his disciples to be distinct by caring about people, not about what people think. And so, and the, the Pharisees uh, are stunned, they're silent, they don't know what to say. And finally, eventually, someone says, all right, let's take a seat. Let's get this dinner party started. And so, whew, all right, let's, let's move on from this awkward silence that we've been having. And, and all the Pharisees uh, go and, uh, and, and different um, guests at the uh, dinner party scuffle to get the best seats um, at the dinner party, the way it worked, uh, apparently, is that they, were, they had couches that were in the shape of a U, and the best place was at the curve, the bottom of the curve in the U, so that you could sit there and everyone can see you, and you can, you can choose which conversation to be part of, and that was the place of honor in that situation. So all the Pharisees are, you know, elbowing and trying to get into that, that, those places of honor, and Jesus is just watching all this happening. Uh, all these people just trying to scuttle to get the place of honor, and he has another parable to share. So let's, let's read that one. So from verse 7, it's on the screen again. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not pl- take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so... The host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so Jesus cuts to the heart of, of the, all these different guests trying to scuttle for the place of honor. And he tells this parable. And I really feel for the person who actually got the best seat. Because as Jesus is telling this parable, they'll be sitting there kind of sinking into their sink thinking, oh, this is about me, isn't it? <laughs> but again, our society 
is driven by ambition of seeking honor, seeking the best place. Um, in the working world, uh, there's common uh, sayings like every job is a stepping stone to the next one. So it's all about moving up, you know, climbing the corporate ladder. And I've got to admit, um, Emily and I, my wife and I, are, have been um, thinking about moving into the hills. Uh, we're not anytime soon, but um, you know, now we're working here. We're just keeping an eye on the market. And we feel the cultural pressure to pick some suburbs over others because of their social standing and because of where they are. There's, there's a driver there uh, to, pick, to live in places of honor. And really, the only difference is, is the price point. Our, cult, the, our cultural drive is to be ambitious, uh, to seek the place of honor. But again, Jesus flips the script on our cultural drive. And disciples of Jesus are distinct because they don't seek honor. They don't seek the best place. They seek humility. They seek to the low places. And so we're called to act with humility, that, that when we walk in a room, we don't assume that we're more important than anyone else. But as we walk in a room, we think, I'm the least important person here. How can I love and serve those around me? It affects us uh, in in so many ways, but one um, good example, a guy called George Savides, who used to be the CEO of Medibank, um, he, he describes, um, he, he does a lot of leadership seminars, leadership teaching, and he describes uh, two ways of leading, leading with gravity or leading with grace. And he says, leading with gravity is leading with an attitude that I'm the leader, I'm the important one here, everyone else is here to serve my mission. He says, leading with grace is thinking, I'm the leader. I'm the least important here. My role is to serve everyone else as together we serve the mission. It's leading with gravity or leading with grace. Leading with exaltation or leading with humility. The distinctive of a disciple of Jesus is walking into a room thinking, how can I love everyone else here? Not how can I be loved? You know, does that mean we miss out? Does that mean if we're constantly putting ourselves in the lowest place that we're always going to be down in that ditch in the mud uh, looking up to others who aren't as humble as us? Forever at the bottom of the food chain? No, that's not the case. Do you remember what happened to the person who chose the lowest place? The host brought them to the best place, the honorable place. Disciples of Jesus can uh, act with humility, can choose the, the lower places because they know our honor doesn't come from trying to attain it. Our status, our honor doesn't come by achieving a certain amount or doing a certain thing or whatever. It comes when it's given by the host. That is how honor is truly achieved. And so as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we can choose the low places because we, don't, we know it's not up to us to get it. But it's up to God to give it. And so Jesus flips the script. It's not about exaltation. It's about humility, being a disciple of Jesus. And as Jesus is, you know, shares uh, this second parable, he moves on to a third, speaking directly to the host this time, a third parable, which we're going to look at again. Again, it's on the screen. Jesus says to the host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, 
your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus tells another parable. Again, addressing the cultural drive, this social uh, spiderweb that um, all the guests are caught in of inviting people to dinner and then they'll invite me to dinner and then, um, then that other guest will be there, I can meet and then I can have this advantage in this, this law case I've got going on and all this kind of thing. You know, it's this driver of, of establishing relationships where you, you can have relationships that help you. You know, another word for this is networking. That's not inherently a bad thing, but, uh, you know, I'm a classic networker. I, I, I'll admit that I'm a networker's anonymous. Um, I'm, I, I know a lot of people, and, and, you know, there's people I know who can get me discounts at different stores. I can get a discount at EB Games. I can get a discount at uh, Kurong. You know, that's pretty handy. I, can, um, I know someone who can give me mates rates on plumbing and uh, things like that. And, but if we... The problem with establishing a, a culture of, of growing of relational networks to see what we can get out of it is that it isolates the people who don't have much to offer. It isolates those people and who's there to befriend them. Now, I, um, uh, uh, a ministry I was connected with uh, in a past life in the Anglican Church um, uh, is called um, the Moore Street Dinners. And how it started was actually really cool. So there's a whole bunch of young adults, like much, much like many of us here, they're away on a young adults camp, much like what we, had, uh, what we have coming up next year. Uh, and they, they had good Bible teaching, and, um, and from it they thought, this is great. Hearing about the love of Christ, they were convicted, uh, they learned all this great stuff, and they came back to Adelaide and they talked to each other saying, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do? They were so captivated by the love of God. What can we do to share it? And so they were all part of um, St. Mary's Magdalene at the time. And they said, let's start a dinner party. And we'll invite whoever we can find out off the on the street. And so they started what's now called the Moore Street Dinner. Every Saturday night for the last 30 years, um, they've hosted a dinner party, a three-course meal, where they invite um, everyone they can see on the street. And they, there's homeless people, uh, disadvantaged, struggling, and they come and they have dinner with them. It's not a food drive. They don't feed them, but they actually sit down and eat with them. And, I think, and that's inviting them in, people who otherwise who had no connections or, or really struggling otherwise, uh, coming and connecting with them. Now, Hills Baptist were involved with something very similar called West Care. I'm new here, so I'm still uh, learning all the details, but uh, I understand that um, every Sunday lunchtime, uh, West Care put on a lunch uh, for the disadvantaged and the vulnerable in our society. I think it'd be fantastic if as a, as a church, as a community, we would be sending volunteers to get involved with that, to, to help uh, feed these people, but more importantly, to connect with these people, to offer friendship, uh, to, to the vulnerable in our society. I think it would be a great uh, way uh, to, to apply this passage of to invite the poor, the sick, the lame, the blind uh, to dinners, to lunches. 
But it doesn't just end there. You know, we're leading into Christmas, um, and there's a great opportunity to think about who can we invite? Who can we care for in this season? Not just the people we find fun, not just the people we know we'll get good presents from, but those uh, who otherwise wouldn't have anyone. You know, who, who do we message during the week? Who do we notice isn't here tonight? How can we love those uh, who need to be loved? And so Jesus flips the script of the cultural narrative. It's not about being popular. It's not about being networked. It's about being generous. It's about generosity, not popularity. And so someone hearing all this uh, pipes up and says, wouldn't it be great uh, once we finally get to the feast in heaven? Wouldn't that be fantastic? And Jesus looks around to the, to the Pharisees, these uh, rulers, these prominent people, and thinking about what he's already said and the people around him, he has another parable to share. So we're going to read uh, that one now as well. Again on the screen. And it's not 12 to 14, it's 15 onwards. So when one of them ate at the table with them, heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, everything is now ready. But as they all alike began to make excuses, the first said, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another one said, I've just got married, so I can't come. <laughs> the servant came back and reported to his master. The owner of the house became angry and ordered the servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. But I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. So Jesus looking around, he shares uh, this parable about a banquet. Now, to understand this parable, this story from Jesus, it's important to, to know the um, social protocol around banquets at the time. So what would happen is, is the master of a house is organizing a banquet, and he sends out invitations to people, telling them the date and the time of when this banquet will be, and people respond, RSVP, so this is very similar to a wedding now, it uh, makes sense. And then after that, he would go out into his fields, and he would find... Um, uh, his, his oxen, cows, chickens, whatever, uh, whatever he needs for the feast, he would slaughter those animals and, and play them up, prepare them. He would go into the field and cut some grain and make some bread and he would go to the veggie patch and pull out some carrots, all that kind of thing. Prepare the banquet. And then once it's all ready, then he'd send uh, another set of invitations saying, all right, it's now, it's time. Come enjoy our banquet together. And so that's... That's what happens. Uh, but everyone that he's invited seems to have an excuse. 
seems to have an excuse. And that's, that is incredibly rude to den- having already RSVP'd on the day when the invite comes saying, it's time to, time to have the banquet. To reject that is incredibly rude in that culture at the time. And all of their excuses are really lame. Really lame. The first one, um, they've just bought a field and they needed to go check it out. First, um, the field will still be there tomorrow. Like, why do they need to check it out now? Two, who buys a field without checking it first? Like, <laughs> seriously. Um, and same with the oxen. No, he, these, these oxen that they've just bought, why would he have not checked it beforehand? And those oxen will still be there uh, the next day. Why do they take priority all of a sudden over this banquet? And, you know, maybe the wedding one is okay, but it's not, oh, sorry, the ones who have recently married, but then. They're not, it's not like another wedding that they're going to. They can't because of their marriage. They're already married. So they say they can't come because they're doing, you know, married people stuff. Uh, which is obviously Scrabble. Like, I don't, I don't know what you're thinking. But even so, they could have, he could have brought his wife, his new wife. The more the merrier. Obviously, that's the attitude of the master. These are lame excuses. They've denied the invitation uh, that they were given. These people who are, who are wealthy and successful, they had more money they knew what to do with to buy fields and ox without checking them. But they rejected the invitation. Now Jesus is using this story to convict the Pharisees of their hypocrisy. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the Jewish people, have already had an invitation to the kingdom of God. In, in the Old Testament, the prophets... Um, uh, the law point towards point to a time when when the Son of God will come to usher in the kingdom, and so the first invitation had been made. Uh, and then now, the second invitation comes in the form of a man who says, "The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe." But they're too preoccupied to come. They're too busy looking at their own agendas. They're too concerned about what people would think. They're too concerned about getting that place of honor. They're too concerned about being popular and what they can get out of that social network than to see the Son of God sitting at their table. And when they don't come, when the elite of of their society don't come, who does God invite? He invites the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind. And there's still room. So he sends the servant out onto the street, onto the field, uh, into the countryside to invite, to compel as many people to come as possible. The kingdom of God is open to all who would receive the invitation. Anyone can come in to the kingdom of God as long as they receive the invitation. The only thing that's stopping people is their rejection of the invitation. And so Jesus flips the script on the cultural narrative. This, the idea that it's the elite, it's the best of a society, it's, it's those who can make it for themselves, uh, can save themselves. It's not those who are saved who enter the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. It's the lowly. It's the sick. It's the poor. It's the lame. It's those who can't help themselves. It's those who, those who can't offer anything themselves. He flips the script. It's not the elite 
that are saved, but the lowly. They get caught, the elite get they, they get caught up in their own image, what people think of them, their honor, their popularity. They miss the free gift of grace standing in front of them. And so we're all at risk of missing the gift of grace. Because we, we live in a society where the culture, culture is pushing us in a different direction. Uh, but God, Jesus calls us to be distinctive in that, to be different. It's not the, it's not the elite who will be saved, but the lowly. I loved what Jada shared in her testimony. She says, baptism is not a gift for God, it's a gift from God, because I have nothing to offer. And it's those who realize they have nothing to offer, they are the ones who are saved. And it's because Jesus came down not to bolster the elite or to encourage those who are able to help themselves, but to save those who couldn't help themselves. Jesus came, Jesus. Jesus is the, the epitome of the humility that he's calling uh, Christians to, his disciples to. He was in the place of greatest honor, sitting at the right hand of God. He was, he was in heaven with God. He was king, but he gave that up to come to earth. He had, the greatest honor, he had the greatest place, but he gave it up to be with us humans. And even more than that, he gave his life so that all that we've done uh, that's dishonored God, all in every way that we're broken, we might be healed, all of our sin might be forgiven. He gave his life so that we could be restored. It's, humi- it's the humility that is modeled after Jesus himself, who didn't care what people thought when he came down to serve the sick and lowly. He gave up his place of great honor to, to walk amongst us, and he he died on a cross, though he was entitled to be king, though he had everything to be offered, and he had, he had um, the opportunity to choose to live with and serve whoever he wanted, he came to give his life for those who might trust in him. And so that is the humility. That's the gospel humility that, that Jesus calls us to follow. And remember, it's not the distinctiveness that makes the disciple, but the disciple that makes the distinctive, that as we follow Jesus, that, that we follow a path of humility, of not caring what people think, but caring about people, of not seeking the place of honor, but seeking the place of humility, of not seeking popularity, but being generous, of not thinking that we've got it and we can be saved because of what we've done, what we've, what we've said, how we are, but knowing that we're saved because we have nothing to offer. And God has everything to offer. And so we're going we're gonna, to um, finish the sermon tonight by celebrating communion, uh, by sharing the Lord's Supper. And we do this to remember what God has done for us, to remember what Jesus has done for us, that he humbled himself, that he gave himself for us. On the day before he was betrayed and, and died on the cross, he met with his disciples and he, he, um, he uh, shared a meal with them where he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took uh, a cup of wine and he shared it with his disciples. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me.
And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to come and share uh, this small meal together, remembering the, the, Jesus' body broken for us and remembering his blood shed for us so that we might be forgiven. And remembering that what we are called to, to that Christ-like humility. And as disciples of Jesus, we are to be distinct from the world, that he's flipped the script on, the, on our cultural drive. Now, this is a special meal for those who trust in Jesus uh, for their salvation. And if that's not you, then this meal is not yet for you. Uh, But do feel free to stay in your seat to reflect on what's been said, to reflect on what we've heard from Jada early today and the songs or or God's Word. Uh, But if you do trust in Jesus for your salvation, for your whole life, then uh, in a minute we'll bring this table here. Uh, We'll we'll have two lines coming up. You can come, uh, grab a cup, grab a bit of bread. Uh, You can eat the bread straight away, uh, but keep the cup and we'll all drink that together.